You take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter number 15. Exodus 15, verse number 22 is where we're going to begin in just a moment. Exodus 15, 22. We're, uh, I believe this is sermon number five or six. I can't remember what number it is, either five or six. But I've got 14 messages, I promise, and that's it. No more, no less on this. But I did want to just say something about this. One of the, the goals of this series is to show the interconnectedness of the Old and the New Testaments. Uh, already we've seen how that the New Testament fleshes out the spiritual reality in the Old Testament events. And this is important for us to understand. We have to ask this question, how do we interpret Old Testament events? Have you ever asked that question? I know you have, because it's a mystery to so many uh, Christians. Much of the Old Testament, it, well, let me, let me back off and just say this. This is a way to think about Old Testament events. You ready? This is important that you, that you uh, grasp this. Much of the Old Testament, including what we cover today, these events are vivid, full-color, now listen, physical illustrations of spiritual realities. Think of it this way. You have the New Testament that teaches you about Christ and about Christian doctrine and how it's fulfilled. And if it were text, then when you look at the Old Testament, those are the illustrations in the book, the drawings, so that we have an idea, a picture of, of what this spiritual concept actually looks like. And many Christians get messed up, hosed up, whatever you want to uh, call it, by looking at Old Testament events and then saying, okay, these things are going to happen again one day, or these things are happening right now, or whatever. For example, let me give you one example, okay? Last week we preached on the Red Sea, the Red Sea crossing. A common uh, uh, application that pastors do is say, what's your Red Sea crossing? That's completely wrong, Okay, Jesus is our Red Sea crossing. Same thing with David and Goliath. Who's the giant in your life or what's the giant in your life? No, no, not, not at all. This is about Jesus Christ. All of it is about Jesus Christ and it's not about you and your personal problems and the giants in your life. It's about how through Jesus Christ we will all overcome and we all spend eternity with him together uh, in heaven. Won't that be wonderful? It is. So Exodus is true history. It's the true history of Israel's salvation, and it shows the pattern of salvation in Jesus Christ, which is why the New Testament describes the work of Christ in terms of the Exodus. We were enslaved in the Egypt of our sin, weren't we? But then Jesus came and set us free. He is our Passover lamb who shed his blood on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. He brought us through the Red Sea. In his burial, Jesus passed through the deep waters of death. And by his resurrection, he landed safely on the other side. And we are in him. That's the New Testament term. All of this signifies is signified in Christian baptism. The exodus from Egypt was forecast or was a forecast of an even greater exodus. It's our deliverance from sin 
through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? It's, it's so vivid, what, what it's describing uh, in, uh, in, in our lives. In terms of the believer's life, let me ask this question, okay? So we've gone through salvation, baptism. In terms of a believer's life, what comes next after saving faith? Are we escorted immediately into heaven? If so, we have a little problem here. No, what comes next, once a sinner has turned to Christ for salvation, the next thing on the list is his sanctification. And what is sanctification? That's a really long word. If you don't know Christian doctrine, let me tell you what it is. Sanctification is the long, hard, difficult process of becoming conformed to the holiness of God. For Israel, that process began as soon as the music stopped in, in Moses' song, in Miriam, uh, his sister's song. Look at chapter 15, verse number 22. What does it say? This is immediately after the song. Immediately after the song, verse number 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness. Okay? The wilderness. By the way, let me, let me give you something. Uh, this is free. We think, what do we think of when we think of the term wilderness? We think of trees. We think of uh, that kind of thing. And the biblical concept of wilderness is desert. Anytime you see the word wilderness in the Bible, think desert. Think no trees, not even cactuses there really, okay? Just, it's a desert. So he takes them into the desert, the wilderness is a hard place, but it's the place to meet with God, to be sure. And it's always been a difficult place. And let me give you a truth. This is an important truth. The church is now living in the wilderness. This is your wilderness right now. Now, you have it pretty good, most of you, don't you? This is our wilderness we are living in the wilderness between the first and the second comings of Christ. He came once to save us, and he will come again to lead us home. In the meantime, we're on a long and difficult pilgrimage, which God is using to make us holy. Acts chapter 14, verse number 22. You know what it says? It says, we must go through many tribulations in order to enter the kingdom of God what it says that doesn't mean that our salvation is not secure what it is secure what it means is that God will bring us through to our journeys in but the way is still hard and we are going to face disappointment we're going to face difficulty we're going to face discouragement and we're even going to face doubt and these are all things that God uses to bring to conform us to the image of his son which is what he wants he wants you to be like christ more than he wants you to be healthy and happy and prosperous israel faced three tests in this passage of scripture that we're going to look at today from 1522 to 177 three tests in order to conform them to the image of god's holiness and i want us to see it beginning in chapter 15 verse number 22 the first test is the test of the bitter water. Now think about this. If you continue to read the text, they go into the wilderness of Shur, 
three days they were without water. They had skins that had water in them, and they had all kinds of animals, and so they had to have enough water, carry enough water with them for themselves and their animals. They carried it in skins. Um, and they're going into the wilderness. Now, they could have been, by this time, to the point where they had no water or they were risking dehydration. But what did God do? In his grace, he led them to an oasis, didn't he? That the Bible says? He, they went to an oasis. But there was a, there was a problem. When they got there, they found out that the water was brackish. It was unfit for human con, uh, cons, consumption and possibly could have been uh, even harmful for their health. Now think. Think with me. Ask yourself this question. God could have sent them to a beautiful oasis with nice, cool water, couldn't he? Couldn't he have done that? He could have brought rain. He could have brought rain that they collect but he didn't do that either instead he took them to brackish water now what kind of a good god does that why would god do that to thirsty people look at the answer the answer is found in the text today verse number 25 chapter 15 he did it in order to test them the verse says he tested them now notice how they responded to the text in verse number 24. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? You know what they did? They complained. Complaining and grumbling, what are they? Let me, get, well, let me tell you what they are. They're signs of ungratefulness. Grumbling and complaining are signs of ungratefulness. They're signs of self-centeredness. They're signs of immaturity and insecurity. Now, you would think that by now, the Israelites would have learned to cry out to God in prayer. They've had the plagues, they've had the Red Sea crossing, and all these sort of things, but they haven't yet. Instead, they grumbled. Uh, some have called grumbling and anxiety functional atheism. In other words, they're acting like God doesn't exist. Like, like there's... Like there's not a God that actually brought these circumstances my way. That luck or chance or anything else happened to, to, to bring this this way. Let me ask you, dear believer, is your first reaction to difficult circumstances grumbling and anxiety? Or is it spirit-filled prayer? <clears throat> of course, when, when Moses brought this trouble to the Lord... The Lord had a really easy solution. I love, the, I love the language. Look at the language. Verse number 25, first part. And he cried out to the Lord. What did the Lord do? Showed him a log. Okay? Um, the, the actual word there, by the way, is tree. The Hebrew word there is tree. He showed him a tree. Throw it in the water. And all of a sudden, the, the water is, is then fit to drink. That was a pretty simple solution, wasn't it? But they complained about it. What's remarkable, I don't want you to miss this part of it, what is remarkable is not that God performed the miracle at Marah, but that he was willing to do it for a bunch of malcontents. Isn't that the miracle? That's, that's astounding to me. God's grace is so amazing that he even provides for whiners, provided those whiners are his children. 
Why does God do this? God does this to show His grace and His mercy. And He does it for a second reason. He does it so that we can learn to trust Him. Because we need to learn to trust in Him. He is the water of life. God wants us to have a deep dependence on His ability to provide for us. Often He teaches us this lesson by first bringing us to bitter water. Have you ever been to bitter water in your life? God brought you there to bitter water? Maybe you thought that you were landing the dream job. It was a dream all right, but it was a nightmare. Right? Or whatever else it is. One sign of growing spiritual maturity in our, is our ability to trust that God will provide even when we can't even see how God will provide right think about how creative God is God you know what he did you know what God has done he has promised us to give us everything that we need for what for our lives and for our godliness for you to live and for you to become more like Jesus Christ God has given you everything you need what a great God we serve, right? Now, God was going to teach them a vital spiritual lesson. Let's look at the second half of verse number 25 and following. There, the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. There he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer. I am the Lord. I am your healer. Now, I need to give you a translation note. Okay? There has been a lot of really bad theology that's come from this verse. There's even been some bad books with the title from these verses. Okay? I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. What is the Lord saying here? Let me, say what he, let me tell you what he is not saying. He is not saying that he will never allow you to get sick. That's not what he's saying. God declared here that the Israelites would be free from having to worry about plagues. Remember the plagues? He declared, this is important because this is true for us too, he declared that he would not become angry at them in such a way as to subject them to the miseries that he subjected Egypt to if they were loyal and obedient. Now this is not works salvation. They were already saved, weren't they? The Bible indicates the Passover lamb and the Red Sea crossing is indicative of salvation. They were delivered. He had delivered them from the land of Egypt out of the house of bondage. And now is the time for sanctification. So God gave them his law. What he did not say, and this is where, this is where many people get hosed up on the Old Testament. He did not say, do this and I will save you. Know what he said? 
He saved them first. And then he said, now here are some things I want you to do. He saves us, then he tells us what he wants us to do. They were for Israel's sanctification. And genuine saving faith is always followed by joyful good works. You see, God wants us to do more than just um, have faith in him and uh, believe in what he's done. He also wants us to obey what he commanded. And so God gave Israel these instructions to help them live for his glory. So once we have been saved, the way to experience the absolute fullness of God's blessing is to trust and obey. Trust and obey. You know the hymn, right? For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. What does it mean? It means you trust. There was, a, there was a evangelist, an old-time evangelist from the hills of Kentucky, and I know this is a famous phrase, but he's the one I heard say it. He said, you trust God when you can't track him. Trust God when you can't track him, and you obey him when it doesn't seem uh, like a, a fitting thing to do. We trust and obey. God's desire for Israel was to bless and not to curse. He didn't test the people so that they would fail. He tested them in the hope that they would learn to obey. It's no different for you. The Israelites, though, what did they do? Did they pass? They kept failing. Not only Amara, but for 40 years of wilderness journeying, they failed. When they were thirsty, they didn't trust and obey. They grumbled and complained. And we often fail in the same way. Our, our need for provision is the testing of our faith. But when the time of testing comes, rather than waiting for God in quiet confidence, we get, we get anxious. We get angry. And by the way, I'm not just talking about physical. I don't, there's probably very few in this sanctuary who struggle with their physical needs being met, financial needs. So what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about every other way. Parents, do you ever think, I don't know if I have enough wisdom to raise these kids? You do. God, he makes his strength perfect in our weakness, doesn't he? Now, you've got to work hard at instilling scripture into your children's lives, but God does the, the work. You're the instrument with which he uses. And I could go on, but I'll just say this. This is why we so desperately need Jesus. Jesus did pass the test, didn't he? He did pass the test in order to save us. Jesus, in order to save us, Jesus had to keep the whole law. I Turn, turn to Matthew 4. I wasn't going to have you turn there, but I'm going to have you do it anyway. His testing, passing the test was necessary for our salvation. Remember, I've said it a couple times already that Matthew 1, 2, 3, and 4 are Jesus being the real Israel, the perfect Israel. Matthew 4 chronicles his testing in the wilderness. Forty days, symbolic of the 40 years that Israel was in the wilderness. Look at verse number 2. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to be loaves of bread. Now, what was the temptation here? The temptation here was to, um, was to get his food his own way and not to trust the Father for his provision. 
Now, do we do that? We do. Every single one of us would rather trust what we can see, whether it's whatever it is, a person, a bank account, a position, whatever else, than trust the God who we can only see by faith. That's, our, that's a common temptation, isn't it? Jesus trusted the Father, and he passed the test. Look at verse number 4. He said, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus, what did Jesus not do? He didn't complain. He didn't grumble. God, why is there no food? I've been out here 40 days without food. Instead, he trusted the Father to sustain him. He was the perfect Israel. Now turn back to Exodus 15. We're going to look at the very last verse, Exodus 15. It ends with God bringing his people to a healing place, to an oasis along the way. Verse number 27, then they came to Elim where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees and they encamped there by the water. So they spent some time there by the oasis, the, the place they were actually looking for, right? And God, God sent them there. Well, that's test number one. What's test number two? Chapter number 16, bread from heaven. This is an important chapter. This, this chapter deserves a whole sermon. It really does. Complaining was Israel's besetting sin. We've already seen them repeatedly complain, and now we, here we are again, verse number 2. Look at verse number 2, chapter 16. And the whole congregation of Israel, what? Grumbled. That's actually a very strong word. It's almost the word of, it was the uprising. That's how, that's how adamant they were. In verse number 3, they complained about their meal plan. Didn't they? Mark this down. Write this down. Apply it to your own life. Stick it on your mirror. And don't forget this. Our complaints are never caused by our outward circumstances. Our complaints reveal the inward condition of our hearts. Dear believer, if you are a complainer, it's not your circumstances. It's your heart. If you believe in a God who is sovereign and providentially leads your life everywhere, all the circumstances that come your way, and that's what Scripture says all through Scripture, then you do not complain. And I'll show you why in just a minute. Now the Israelites said, we're starving here. Know what they said? They said it more flowery than that, didn't they? But it wasn't true. They had livestock, they had flocks, they could drink milk, they could make cheese, they could even meet, eat meat. They weren't starving, they were exaggerating. Psalm 78 bears this out, you don't have to turn there, but I'll tell you Psalm 78 verses 18 and 30 both say that what they did is they craved food. Not the food that was essential to their survival, but they craved the good food that they felt they could have gotten in Egypt. The Israelites, and listen, we do this, the Israelites confused what they wanted with what they needed. Now, your kids never do that, do they? Notice I said your kids. You are kids of someone. 
This is often, most of the time, most of the time, the source of our discontentment is thinking that our greeds are really our needs. Am I hitting right where you live? Because I know I'm hitting right where I live, right? Complaining is an awful sin. How bad is complaining? Complaining is actually a form of rebellion. And the Bible says that rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft. Psalm 78, look at this on the screen with me. This is talking about the children of Israel in the wilderness. Yet they sin still more against him, rebelling against the Most High God. They tested God in their hearts by demanding the food that they craved. So it's associating complaining with rebellion. That's what complaining is. Think about that next time you're tempted to complain. It's rebellion against what God has done in your life. Even though they're complaining was against Moses and Aaron, all complaining is against the Lord. Moses said that. Look at verse number 8. And Moses said, Because the Lord has heard you grumbling, that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Lord, well, I, I won't. Um, no, no, I don't. I've learned a few things in ministry, and sometimes I just need to keep my mouth closed. But when we complain about something or someone in our, whether it's a spouse, our children, the leadership of our church, our boss, whatever else it is, whenever we complain, it's revealing our hearts that we are actually rebelling against the Lord Almighty. Complaining is rebellion. When the people murmured against Moses, it was a mutiny against the Almighty God. They were repudiating their relationship with him. They were, in fact, in, in effect, they were saying they wished that they had never been saved. Right? Read, read what they said. Uh, we would rather be back in Egypt. We wish that we had never been saved. We would, they would rather have bondage and serve Pharaoh. And that this is an important insight about the sin of complaining. All of our dissatisfaction and our discontent ultimately is directed against God, but normally we take our frustrations out on someone else, don't we? Especially the people who are close to us. In, case, in the case of the Israelites, they were taking things out on Moses, but they were angry with God. And this is why God always takes our complaints personally. He knows that when we grumble about our personal circumstances, our spiritual leaders, or anything else, what we are really doing is finding fault with Him. Let me hit home for just a second. You know, I think that sermon was way too long today. No, I'm just kidding. So, it's not too long. I don't care what you think. <laughs> we're complaining... When, when we complain, we're complaining about what he has provided or we're complaining about what he has not provided. A complaining spirit always, always, always indicates a problem in our relationship to God. Always. Now, amazingly, 
This blows me away, thinking about this this week. Amazingly, God provided for them in spite of the complaining. Four times in this chapter, Scripture says that God heard their grumbling. Verse number 7, verse number 8, verse number 9, and verse number 12 all say that God heard their grumbling. Look at verses 11 and 12. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Did he provide? He did, didn't he? To the complainers. He provided quail in the evening, and in the morning the bread came from heaven. What a gracious God that we serve. What do we do to our children when they complain? Are we tempted to give or withhold when they complain? Yeah, you don't have to answer that. I know the answer. But what does God do? He provides, and He keeps providing, even in all our discontent, even in all our ungrateful complaining. But why? Why would God do that? Why would God provide for a bunch of complainers in the wilderness, whether that wilderness is Egypt or the wilderness is between His two comings? Why would God do that? Why? Answer? And in the morning, you shall see what? The glory of the Lord. He does all things for His glory. Verse number 7. I'm sorry. uh, Verse number... um, I've just completely lost my place. Yes, verse number 9. Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord... And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and what happened? Behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. Remember the cloud? Remember that cloud led them to the, the bitter springs. Now the cloud led them, and they, have, they think they have nothing to eat. What they have is nothing that they want. And God said, I'm going to show you my glory, and he does it two ways. Number one, through the glory in the cloud, and number two, by his provision. God gave his people bread to show that he was the Lord. Another way to say this is that God would show Israel his glory. And what's important about that? God's glory is always in his reputation. It is his honor. It's the weightiness of his character. His glory is the sum total of all his divine uh, perfections. To know that He is Lord, then, is to know Him as the God of glory. God deserves glory. He wants glory, all the glory that we could ever give Him. If we learn nothing else from Exodus, nothing else, get this, write this in your minds. We are saved for God's glory. We are saved for God's glory. At every stage of Israel's deliverance, God did what he did and did it in the way that he did to receive all glory and praise. However predictable it comes, uh, there is no more important lesson to this. God arranges all things for the ultimate good of his glory. Every time he provides, he adds a little more weight to his reputation. Have you, have you journeyed with the Lord long enough that you remember back in the days when 
you would worry about maybe a provision. And now you're to the point where if there's a setback, you don't even really worry about it. The first thing you do is turn to the Lord. Lord, I don't know how you're going to provide for this one, but I know you will because you've been so faithful. Whatever that provision is, spiritual provision, whatever else. Have you gotten that point in your journey? I remember when we were young, um, a poor youth pastor, I, I, I would say, it, we, we, there was this time in our life where every time we would get a little bit of extra money and we think, oh, we can get this or something, something would break. You been there? I think a lot of you have been there. And it got to the point when we, when we were living there in Memphis early on where somebody might hand us some money and we just look at each other, okay, what's going to break this time? <laughs> Usually it was a car, but uh, that's, that's beside the point. But, but God arranges all things for the good of His glory. God does the same thing for us. There is glory in the ordinary providence of God. Every time He takes care of our needs, every time He spares us from danger, every time He enables us to repent of our sins, or to believe His promises, or to believe that He works things out in a way that seems impossible, Every time we see a little bit more of the weight of His glory. Or at least we ought to. If we're not giving God the glory after all these done for us, what more would it take? Now thinking about this, God called His provision bread from heaven, didn't He? What did the Israelites call it? Manna. Which simply means what is it? They, they literally walked out one morning, and when the, the frost or the dew left, there's all this stuff, and they said, what is it? Moses said, eat it. I wouldn't recommend that if you see something on the ground to eat it, okay? But Moses said, it's okay, you can eat this stuff, it's from the Lord. And, and, and that's what they did. They called it manna. Manna was sent not only to provide for them, this is important, it was also sent to sanctify them. You see, manna was a physical miracle, and its purpose was to teach the spiritual lesson, and the spiritual lesson is this, God is the source of all our life. He's the source of our spiritual life. Forty years later, in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is recapping what happened in the wilderness, and this is what he said about the, the manna. I want you to notice a couple things. He humbled you, and he let you hunger. Now, that sounds mean, doesn't it? You ever let your kids go hungry? You should. Seriously, if they sit down at that meal and they won't eat, okay, you're going hungry. If you're the mother that fixes them an alternative meal, shame on you. Now, I know I'm going to get emails. He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know what's the truth. Man does not live by bread alone. What does he live by? Every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That's what we live by. And so when let's just say that you are in a place where you're financially destitute. You don't live by the money that you earn, you live by the Lord, and so you take your care to the Lord. 
Lord, I don't know where this is going to come from, but you promised to supply my needs. We live by the Word of God, and it reminds us of Jesus, doesn't it? We already talked about this. He'd been fasting 40 days and 40 nights. And like the Israelites, he was desperate for food. So the devil tempted him to turn the stones into bread. We covered this verse already. He quoted Deuteronomy 8.3. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Jesus knew that our deepest needs are not physical, but spiritual, didn't he? What we really need is God. And when we have him, we have everything that we need. Let me say that one more time. What we really need is God. And when we have him, we have everything that we need. And this is a lesson that Israel never learned. Let me prove it to you. Turn to John chapter number 6. Israel never learned this lesson. John chapter 6. One of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. The feeding of the 5,000 happens early on in chapter number 6. If you remember the story of... the, 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 Jesus tells the disciples to cross to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He goes up on the mountain and prays. The other accounts let us know exactly what happened with the storm that night and everything else. He's across the sea. If you've been to Israel, you've seen the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Peter had a fishing boat. He was probably in Peter's boat or one of them. They would paint those things. And so everybody knew which boat Jesus would have been in. And so people ran along the shore to the other side the next morning, and they want food. And Jesus began teaching hard things about the food, and and, uh, they're puzzled. And so they said to him this in verse number 30, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? And this is what they said then, next verse. Our fathers, what'd they do? They went right back to the manna. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus had already given them the sign. They didn't see the sign or believe it. He, by feeding them bread and the feeding of 5,000, he demonstrated that he was the new and greater Moses. So this is how he answered, verse number 32. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you true bread from heaven. Now what does he mean by that? What's true bread from heaven? Next verse. For the bread of God is a person. He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Who is that? Jesus Christ. He's the bread from heaven. He was talking about himself. They still weren't sure what he was talking about. So verse number 34, they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. They're still as confused as I'll get out. Next verse, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In other words, he would provide for all their spiritual needs, of course. But more than that, He would meet all their deepest spiritual needs forever. That's what he's saying. Now, when the the people heard this, they did exactly like their predecessors in the wilderness. You know what they did? 
They grumbled. They grumbled and complained. They wanted God. Now, why, why did they grumble and complain? They wanted God on their own terms. They wanted a guy, God who would not only provide the bread in the evening, they wanted breakfast. And they wanted it when they asked. So they weren't interested in what Jesus had to offer. They didn't understand that this is a matter of life and death. They didn't understand that this is the difference between eternal salvation and everlasting damnation. And the difference is faith in the Son of God. So he went ahead as gracious as he was. Jesus explained to them. Look at this explanation beginning in verse number 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. Okay? Now he's talking about eternal life. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. Your fathers, they ate that physical bread, but they died because they did not believe. Okay? Look at what else he says. This is the, um, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And he went on to say, whoever eats my flesh, right, will inherit eternal life. And that just totally, they totally did not understand it. What did Jesus do? Jesus did this. He moved from the physical to the spiritual. He does that all the time. He did it with Nicodemus. He, he did it with the disciples when he's talking about the manna of the Pharisees. He moves from the physical to the spiritual, from the temporal to the eternal, from the exodus to the cross. The manna in the wilderness was another type. It was something, an Old Testament event that pointed to Jesus Christ. The Lord gave Israel instructions. They were to only collect what they could use in a day. You can read the manna instructions. There were two. Collect only enough for one day, and the day before the Sabbath, collect twice as much. Right? It was a test. And what was the test? It was a test to see if they would trust God or trust in themselves. If they would trust God or trust physical abundance. Today it would be trust God or trust your job. Trust God or trust your bank account. Trust God, trust your connections. Trust God or trust your own wisdom. Can I go on? You got the idea. That's the test. They were not to hoard, but they were to learn to trust God for tomorrow as well as today. Every day, every single day for 40 years, God tested their faith in His providence. He was teaching them to trust in Him for their daily bread. Day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, they had to depend upon Him for everything. Because God gives and supplies our daily bread. You know what? We are not to worry. Should we worry? We shouldn't. This is so fascinating. I wasn't going to have you turn there, but you've got to turn to this and turn. Turn to 2 Corinthians 8. I, I, was, I was telling Heather this morning early, early this morning, I said, this is probably the most astounding reasoning that I saw all week as I was studying, intermittently in between everything else that was going on. 2 Corinthians 8 is all about Paul teaching the Corinthians and enjoining them to be generous. 
the beginning of the chapter, he starts talking about the Macedonians, how in their abundance of what? Poverty. Not riches. Poverty. In their destitute poverty, they were generous. And he goes on teaching them, and he reminded them not to hoard the gifts of God. And here's his argument. His argument is he, he goes back to the man. Look at verse number 15. As it is written, whoever gathered much has had nothing left over, and who gathered little had no lack. Let me translate Paul's reasoning for you. You are to be generous. It doesn't matter how much money you have. You are to be generous. You are to give to the poor. You are to give to the needy. And you are to do it very generously. Why? Because God is the one that supplies. If you give your, and you've heard the stories, you give your last hundred dollars, and you don't know where you're going to pay that bill, but you know that God moved you to pay it. It happens, doesn't it? I'm not going to rehearse the stories. It's happened in my own life, particularly when I was a college student. I, I could tell you some astounding stories from my college years, how God provided. I just trusted him. I felt the Lord telling me to give. God will give. It does not matter how big your bank account is or how uh, red your bank account is. It, God said that he will provide. And Paul's reasoning was, it's not the amount of money you have. It's the God that you serve. Man in the wilderness. Turn to Exodus chapter number 17. And we'll get there in just a second. God wasn't just filling their bellies. God was shepherding their hearts. He said in Deuteronomy chapter 8 that this experience was meant to humble them and teach them to depend upon the wor God's word. He was disciplining them and shaping them. And we are being disciplined and shaped by God's word. And therefore, we need God's word every day, just like the Israelites need a manna every day. God's word is your manna. And if you're not reading it every day, you are not getting God's word, or you're not getting your daily bread. You see, when Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread, he was not just talking about food. He was talking about spiritual life as well, because Jesus always moved from physical to spiritual. Let's look at test number three, chapter 17, water from the rock. I'm going to say this again, and I'm going to run through this very quickly. This deserves a whole sermon. This is a beautiful, just, I, I was emotional writing about this this week, thinking about Christ. Now we come to the third test. The Israelites moved on to Rephidim, and then once again, there was no water, once again, they quarreled with Moses, and we learned that when you quarrel with Moses, you're actually quarreling with the Lord. They still hadn't learned. Look at the question, verse number 7. Look at their question. They tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now, we do the same thing. Do you know how we do it? We interpret our life by our circumstances. Our circumstances are hard. What's our first question? Is God punishing me? Isn't, it? Isn't that your question? I, I've counseled so many people. They're, they encounter difficult circumstances, and they say, God is punishing me. I did this 25 years ago. 
No, he's not punishing you for something you did 25 years ago if you're in Christ. What God is doing is teaching you about himself. Don't interpret your life by your circumstances. Don't, and what I mean by that is don't interpret your eternal blessings by your physical temporal circumstances. Let's carefully read the narrative beginning in verse number 3. But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Now, now they're standing there saying that to Moses, and what is somewhere around in the vicinity? A giant pillar of cloud or fire that they're following. Right? Remember that. Why did you take us out here to kill us? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? I'll tell you what I think. Then he goes on to say, they're almost ready to stone me. This is how upset they are. They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, <coughs> pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel. This is so beautiful. I'm going to describe it here in a minute. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. Well, I'll save that. And go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of all the elders of Israel. Let me paint a picture. They sat in judgment of God. Didn't they? They sat in judgment with God. This is a court case going on here. Why have you taken us out here to kill us? They complained against God. They deserved what? They deserved judgment. But instead, look at God's response. He graciously responded by saying, Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go and stand before the rock at Horeb. You know what Moses' staff was? That was a staff of judgment. You look at that staff, every time God told him to take that staff, someone died. Did you know that? Every single time he took that staff, someone died, someone was judged. And the Lord was going to stand on the rock at Horeb while Moses had the staff of judgment. Now Horeb, does that name ring a bell? You know what Horeb is? It's, it's come up in Exodus already. Exodus chapter 3, look at, look at it with me. It says this, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the what? The mountain of God. So he's at the rock at the mountain of God. Horeb is the mountain of God, but you know it by a different name. Sinai. Sinai, the mountain of God. And God passed before them to the base of Mount Sinai, the mountain of judgment, and told Moses to strike the rock with the staff of judgment. And God delivered the people. Don't miss this. He delivered the people by submitting to his own rod of judgment. The elders gathered around to see what judgment God would give. 
Then Moses struck the rock with his uh, rod, and God opened the rock, and water gushed out, and it flowed through the desert like a river. And once again, we see the recurring theme throughout the whole Bible that when one person is saved, someone else is what? Judged. Remember that? Salvation always comes through judgment. You see, our perfect Savior, Jesus Christ, God, uh, let me back up, God submitted to his own judgment by sending his own son to die on the cross and took the penalty that he meted out against sin. What did the water prove? The water proved everything about God that the Israelites were calling into question. They were demanding his provision, denying his protection, and doubting his presence. But the water flowing from the rock proved all of these things. Not only was God their provider, he was their protector. And instead of judging his people for their sins, especially for their unbelief, he submitted himself to judgment so that they could live. The rock was the proof of God's presence. And the Israelites wanted to know if God was with them or not. Well, he was there, and he was their Savior, and he was standing on the rock. And I want to remind you of something. That was Mount Sinai. How long were they there? They were there over a year. That water flowed from that rock for over a year, providing for them the water that they used to live at the base of Mount Sinai while they built the tabernacle and everything else. The water that they drank every single day was a reminder of the judgment that God took for them. God sent his son into the world, and people did to him what the Israelites wanted to do with Moses. The son of God was a man without a home, a wanderer on the earth. He was hungry and thirsty, and when his life was almost over, he was deprived of all of his rights. He was stripped mocked, beaten, condemned to die in the most disgraceful and excruciating death, the death on the cross, that rock was Christ. Mike read it this morning. The rock was Christ because like the rock, Christ was struck with divine judgment. And this is what happened to him on the cross. Christ was bearing the curse for our sin, so God struck him with the rod of his judgment. And you know what Scripture says about that? This is so fascinating to me. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we were healed. The judgment that Christ received on the cross is proof of our protection. He took the judgment to protect us from it. It shows that we will not suffer eternal death for our sins. God takes, has taken the judgment of our guilt upon him, and now we are safe for all of eternity. That rock was also Christ because it flowed with the water of life. And here we recall something significant about the resurrection. Do not miss this. This is huge. John records how that in order to confirm that Jesus was dead, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. I've heard many Preachers give this sentimental, you know, Jesus' heart was broken, and, and when you die of a broken heart, water comes out. Maybe, I don't know. 
But what's the obvious connection? The rock. When he was punished, water came out from the area of his heart. It's a clear reference back to Exodus 17. Jesus is the water of life. He said, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst. He's our provider as well as our protector. And more than that, everyone who comes to Jesus by faith is filled with the Holy Spirit. And now his life flows within us. And that's why Jesus went on to say, indeed, the water I give him will be in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. Dear believer, I'm going to close with this. Jesus is our protector, provider, ever-present Lord. And Paul, that's what Paul meant when he said in 1 Corinthians 10.4, that rock was Christ. And in the same way that God was with Israel at Horeb, He is with the church in Jesus Christ. Our Lord is our rock. We can trust Him in His provision. We can trust Him in His protection. And we can trust Him in His presence. We can trust Him with everything. We owe everything to Him. And we are saved to honor and glorify Him. Amen? Lord, I thank You for these beautiful, vibrant, true living color pictures of our salvation that we see in the Old Testament. They are, they are magnificent, Lord. They are, you are astounding, that you provide for whiners and complainers. And I pray, Lord, that right now, if there are some of us that are prone to whining and complaining, that right now we will repent of our rebellion against you. Lord, I pray for those of us who are prone to anxiety, whether it's what, what, how, how our children are going to turn out, or the future, our financial future, or uh, the future of the church, or whatever else our anxiety and worries are, Lord, that we will realize that you are our daily bread. And you provide, and you provide abundantly, and you provide just what we need when we need it. And Lord, I pray that we will turn to the rock, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if there is someone here today who has not put his faith in the rock, that he'll do it today. And that today will be his day of salvation. And today, from his heart or her heart, will spring the waters, the river, the water of life, the Holy Spirit living within them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.